Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. Here we dive deep into the worlds of permaculture, natural building, and regenerative living as we aspire to help you reach your highest potential for yourself, for your community, and for this beautiful planet that we all share. As always, I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher, and I have a great session for you in this week's episode, so let's jump right in. Are you looking for the best resources to help you build a regenerative lifestyle? New Society Publishers has been a leader in sustainable publishing for over 30 years. They publish good news and solutions for individuals and organizations seeking to change their lives so that they may change the world for the better. Their company mandate goes far beyond the single bottom line of profit. They care deeply not only about what they publish, but also how they do business. They believe in the authors that they take on and the works that they bring to the marketplace. From sustainable living to progressive parenting, New Society Publishers has the books you need to help build a better world. Buy your print and ebooks online at www.newsociety.com or at fine bookstores near you. Hello and welcome to the first episode in Season 2 of the Abundant Edge Podcast. We have so many exciting interviews and information coming up for you in 2018, and this week's session is a perfect example of that. Today we're going to be speaking with Mark Shepard of New Forest Farm in Viola, Wisconsin, an author of Restoration Agriculture, one of the most iconic books on profitable regenerative production methods anywhere. Now I've been a big fan of Mark's work and teaching since I first saw his farm profiled on a remarkable documentary called Inhabit that highlights inspiring examples of permaculture around the USA. Now Mark is a no-nonsense advocate of farming methods and enterprises that are not only sustainable, but actually restore their ecosystem and increase the carrying capacity of life around them. In this interview, Mark talks about his unique journey that brought him to conclusions about how humans should interact with nature and take care of their resources. He goes into detail about how he determines if a farm enterprise will be worth the effort and resources invested in it, and how to plan for the long-term development of perennial systems while still bringing in an income. Mark also gives sound advice on how to acquire land, build equity, and grow your business by navigating the capitalist system that many people in the alternative communities have written off entirely. This is a very insightful talk that may push your buttons a little if you're not familiar with Mark's teachings, but I urge you to keep an open mind and remember how much Mark's results speak for themselves. Now before I give too much away, I'll turn things over to Mark Shepard. Hey Mark, thanks so much for making time for us today. How you doing? Oh, doing all right. A little tired and a little bit cold with the uh, winter weather here in Wisconsin. Yeah, you got to come down and visit me here in Guatemala. It's sunny and about eh, 78 degrees. <laughs> you can, well, 78 is nice. Yeah. Like any any more than 85. See, the thing is, you can always put more clothes on, but you can only get so naked. No, we have like this perfect medium climate here, especially around this time. It gets cold in the evenings, but it's otherwise gorgeous during the day. Nice little breeze. We're, we're loving it here around this time. What's the seasonal rainfall pattern like there? Is it uh, is it monsoon? Is it uh, fairly regular? What's it like? Yeah, we get a very serious rainy season with the odd hurricane coming through every couple of years. We missed it last year, but it's you know it's about half half, so dry season, wet season, and we get about eighty four inches of rain a year, so pretty significant. <laughs> but it's good. It gets us through the entire dry season, which is when all the tourism comes here. It's when we do our courses and stuff, so it's a good mix. Good. But hey, so look. I'm a really big fan of your work and I've been incredibly inspired by your story, but even more with your progress um, and the process that which you've gotten to where you are. 
And I've got a lot that I'm looking forward to asking you about. So how about we just jump right into the first questions? Let's jump. All right. So could you start by explaining a bit about your background and how you first became interested in regenerative agriculture and permaculture? Oi, oi, oi. Sheesh. Well, I <laughs> actually, I grew up, I grew up in uh, industrial wasteland, north central Massachusetts in the 1960s and 70s when there was the great uh, outsourcing of American industry. So export all the jobs overseas um, and, you know, tremendous unemployment, inflation and all that kind of stuff. Uh, one of the things that's interesting, I'm going to sneeze. It's going to come up pretty soon here. <laughs> Take your time. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, don't worry, I won't and, edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't have to. That's all right. And uh, what's what was fascinating about it, which is, it's a whole other set of stories nested within stories, is my dad was a biodynamic gardener ever since he was a kid, and at the time he was one of only a handful on on the whole continent that was uh, using the biodynamic preparations and making the bi biodynamic preparations. So I grew up thinking that biodynamics and organic was normal. Well, uh, so gardening was a big part of my uh, was my uh, part of my growing up. Well, then all this economic crises hit. Dad's unemployed for long periods of time. Uh, then the the whole uh, 1974 oil embargo um, kind of hit. And uh, in the background of this, remember, we're in this crumbling industrial wasteland, all the factories and smokestacks along the river. And the river was quite spectacular because the big game every day when we got into the car was to guess what color the river is today. It'd be blue, it'd be green, it'd be red, it'd be yellow, it'd be orange, it would be on fire. And um, it was in 1975, I think, when the Cuyahoga River in Ohio caught on fire. I kind of tug on my mom's, you know, shirt and say, "Hey, mom, why did the Cuyahoga River make the news when our river catches on fire once every other week or so? Isn't that what rivers do?" And that was kind of like the uh, a wake-up call that no, rivers aren't supposed to do that. They're supposed to like flow clear with water and there's fish in them. Um, what then, a concept. Then the, uh, the, yeah, right. The oil embargo hit, and uh, my dad started gardening in earnest, which meant that the oldest boy had to be the most responsible. And so here I was out in the garden slaving my arse off, you know, to grow some tomatoes and cucumbers and carrots and broccolis and all that kind of stuff that really didn't feed us. It was our vitamins and minerals and all that, but we still had to go to the store to buy our staple foods, our meat and pasta and bread. Um and that, then, of course, because of the uh, oil embargo, we also got a wood stove because we had about 10 acres of woods. T nowadays, it would be considered a farmette, I guess. And so my job, being the oldest, of course, was to go down in the woods and cut firewood. Well, while I was out in the woods, I could harvest grapes and blueberries and wintergreen berries and all kinds of greens and hickory nuts and hazelnuts. And it just was a head-scratcher to me. Why on earth... Are we working our arses off in a garden for just a couple of carrots that swim in the soup when we can go out in the woods and not have to like plant anything, hoe anything, weed control, mulch, making compost? Oh my gosh, the compost I've turned in my life, you know, as a kid was just not funny. <laughs> and so there was this huge contrast. It just, I, I couldn't really make sense of it until I uh, read the book Tree Crops by J. Russell Smith, originally written in 1926. 
And that really got me to thinking. It's like, well, yeah, let's grow our animal feeds because in his day, about 50% of all the annual crops were uh, fed to livestock. Let's grow our animal feed in trees because a pig doesn't care if it's eating an acorn or a corn kernel. Uh, and then let's grow our crops in the flatland underneath the trees. And that was the first place that I ever saw the words permanent agriculture put together because the book's title was Tree Crops, a Permanent Agriculture. And throughout the whole book, he starts talking about permanent agriculture, um, the collapses of civilizations, soil erosion, on and on and on. So I was pre, uh, kind of preloaded for the idea of permanent agriculture, permaculture, when it actually finally did come along later on. I think I first heard about it maybe I was in my teens, late teens, thereabouts. So let's move forward to the present day. Your iconic property, New Forest Farm in Viola, Wisconsin, is an inspiring example of multiple agricultural and land management techniques, such as silvopasture, key line systems, permaculture methods, and others. Could you give a few examples of how these techniques work together to create multiple enterprises that work in sync? Boy, boy, it, it, it sounds like a simple question. But I'm sure if anybody actually listens to the question that you asked, there's like 55 million things in there. Um, <laughs> we can break them down. We can take them piece by piece. Yeah, well, kind of. All right. So we'll continue a little bit on the biography first because it leads into how this turned into what it did. Is I, I uh, In high school, I, I uh, graduated, went to school for mechanical engineering because I got a scholarship to go to that school and they had a great wrestling team and that's what I wanted to do. Um, I got out, got an engineering job. I failed to thrive. I hated it. I worked there for about a year and I quit and I went back to school for, uh, for ecology at Unity College in Maine. And, uh, while I was there, I'm studying all about, uh, you know, natural plant communities and forest succession and soil development, all these, uh, uh, you know, basic terrestrial ecological understanding. And then it was, um, <laughs> time for me, time for me to decide whether I should actually continue, uh, my education or I read this little article in Yankee magazine that talked about the closing of the Homestead Act forever up in Alaska. And I figured that if I didn't stick out my thumb and give it a try, uh, I'd probably regret it for the rest of my life. And so I took off to Alaska and claimed land about, oh, 300 miles northeast of Anchorage, five miles off the nearest road, six-hour drive to town once you got there, um, 3,500 feet up the side of the mountain. And all of a sudden, I found myself broke and cold uh, in the, in the subarctic alpine zone. And saying, "All right, how do I how do I feed myself without destroying this place?" And I drew upon a lot of my uh, ecological uh, education, you know, a lot of observation because I was out in the middle of it, and then some study of what the uh, native cultures had done for for uh, subsistence while they were there, and I I started to interact with my environment. Um, and, and treat the whole entire environment as instead of being a hunter-gatherer that goes over here to harvest these berries and over there to get this, I'd plant them all in relationship with one another. And I started writing notes about it. I brought those notes to a friend of mine, and uh, he said, oh, that book's already been written. It's called Permaculture. 
And so I got the uh, all the books at the time that had been written on permaculture, which was Permaculture 1 and Permaculture 2. The hardcover edition of the designer's manual hadn't even been printed yet. And I realized that Mollison was onto something with this designing ecosystems was just a great idea. And so I, of course, you know, continued my education reading, uh, eventually got the hardcover permaculture book, uh, went through that millions of times cover to cover trying to understand it. And the thing was, is I was living in my environment and absolutely applying everything that I possibly could at the time. So after I kind of, you know, I had this notion that I'd kind of figured it out. And one of the keys to quote unquote figuring it out is one of the first things that Bill Mollison recommends in the permaculture designers manual. One of the first things that David Holmgren mentions in permaculture pathways beyond sustainability or whatever that book was, uh, is to observe nature, to imitate nature, then to interact with that, accept feedback and adapt. And uh, it was at that time I started to go to permaculture uh, meetings and workshops and all that kind of stuff. And I realized that people were drastically missing point number one as far as observing nature was concerned. And, it, and it's, it's continued to this day that, that permaculture has continued to miss the boat of observing nature and interacting with it uh, and designing after nature. So when I, when I finally um, decided that instead of just doing a cute little uh, permaculture backyard with a couple of berry bushes and a, and a nut shrub and all that stuff, let's do this. Let's design a property so that it actually has enough of a product that you can harvest. It, it, uh, there's enough of a product to justify the investment in the equipment to harvest it. Uh, storage facilities, processing facilities, and you can get it on a truck and actually pay your bills that way. So that requires a certain scale. So when we moved to southwest Wisconsin, um, the very first thing I did is like, all right, observe nature, all the different textbooks and pre-settlement vegetation maps and stuff like that. And the where we are is right at the boundary between three different um, fairly distinct uh, habitat types one is the oak savanna. Another is the um, the big woods region, which is sugar maple basswood, primarily sugar maple basswood. And then the other is uh, further north into um, pine, um, mixed pine northern hardwoods. And so what you do is you you go to any you know place online. You just do a search for your state. You know, go to Michigan natural plant communities, and then you look at these different natural plant communities. And you look at the species list, and you cherry pick uh, the ones that'll that'll produce food, fuels, medicines, fibers, or things that you can sell. And so the the oak savanna, um, right where we are, right here, the highest the highest layer, the canopy layer, would be fagaceae, which are oak, chestnut, or beech. They have big nuts, all three of them. An understory or kind of a you know sharing that canopy story would be cherries. The prunuses are cherries, apricots, plums, etc. They're they're represented in all the different layers. Is everything from ground growing prunuses to you know full size tree size prunuses. Then under that was a, a layer of um, uh, apples and crotagus, you know hawthorn and apples. 
uh, a shrub, the dominant shrub in this region was hazelnut. Cane fruits were raspberries and blackberries. Uh, vines were grapes. Uh, of course, there was grass all over the place, and the grass was managed by livestock that wandered around. Um, and that sounds like, oh, of course, there's all this biomass that's going to decay, so there's fungus decaying all this biomass. Now, if you just listen to all the things I listed, chestnuts, cherries, apples, hazelnuts, grapes, raspberries, blackberries, currants in the shade, fungus, grass, and animals, uh, which one of those is an annual plant that you have to plow the ground and plant it every single year? Not None a single one, yeah. 100% perennial system. Well, all around the world, every biome has perennial plant communities that thrive under those conditions. And every uh, habitat around the world has the plant communities that will support human societies if we observe nature, imitate what nature has for us in a pattern, and then interact with it and manage that. And how we manage it mostly is by harvesting yields. Absolutely. And within that diversity that you've listed, you've got quite a few different management styles to keep them rotating and in full production for as much of the year as possible. How do those work in conjunction with one another for the benefit of the entire system? Well, keeping it, keeping it in production uh, for as long as possible isn't necessarily the objective here. The objective here is for me to have a livelihood, to be able to pay my bills and feed myself and my family and friends and that kind of stuff, have a, a reasonable economy. Uh, well, the, the most cost-effective way to manage a natural system – now, if you understand, what we did is we created a, a mimicked oak savanna. That's the majority of what we've got. We've got other plant community types too, but I'll just focus on the oak savanna one. The, the natural uh, management tools and techniques that managed oak savannas for the millennia that they've been around, for the zillions of years that they've been around, has been fire, wind, and uh, animals browsing and grazing. So wind typically knocks uh, woody plants over. The roots pull up you know, either completely or partially from the soil. So that means that now you have a depression, that's the pit, and then this mound, which is the roots mixed with mineral soil. So what you have is you have an excavated um, pit, and you have a mound where you've got mixed wood and organic matter. So wait a minute, that sounds a little bit like plowing to a certain extent, that we mix the organic matter with the mineral soil. And actually, it sounds a lot to me like making a swale. You make an excavated depression here and then a mound over there. And guess what happens in the depression? Water will accumulate there. Leaves will blow in. Rabbit turds blow in. You'll get this little microclimate going on of more hyper-fertile soil going on in there, moisture soil going on in there, and things will grow better. So we imitate wind by um, pushing stuff over. I regularly go by with my front end loader and trees that are not performing the way I want. Let's say, let's say uh, uh, hazelnut bushes that aren't producing the, the uh, quantities of hazelnuts that I want. I'll drive by with my front end loader and I just, you know, just jam into the, to the base of it and it like rips them up out of the ground. That's a perfect mimic of wind that 
you know, knock this plant over and the roots get torn up out of the ground. Yeah, you just get to be well, more selective with it. I, I can be very precisely selective, and that's what's, that's the beauty of it. Then as far as um, the mimicking the effects of fire is concerned, I've done some experimenting with, with burning. But fire, if you can imagine going through a wooded area, oftentimes will uh, destroy the tops of trees. Sometimes in a very intense fire, it completely eliminates the, the top of the tree. It's gone. That biomass is removed from the site. All the nutrients that were in that tree have been oxidized and removed from the site. Well, that sounds to me like a harvest. So if we go in and we harvest all that biomass, we'll take the branches and we'll put them right on the ground for uh, chipping later with a flail chopper that we inoculate with um, stropharia mushrooms, so we'll have edible mushrooms. We'll take the wood that's in the middle, the smallest diameter material we'll use for firewood, uh, we'll use um, medium diameter material for uh, mushroom logs. The larger diameter material gets milled into boards. I'm actually sitting in a, in a uh, like a see close to 60 by 80 building right now. That all the framing and the inside paneling in this is made out of um, boards milled from trees that I planted. So we we utilize that biomass. So we'll go through and we'll imitate a fire, for example, and go through and just get rid of all the tops of all that material. We get all the organic matter down on the ground where it can start uh, start the uh, decomposition cycle. We put our own preferred varieties of decomposers in there. Now, <laughs> it all sounds really cool and complex. It's simple, simple, simple. And um, there are people over and over again that, that keep on wanting me to explain how to do this and make zillions of dollars a minute uh, doing this. Well, it, I don't, you know, I, I earn a decent livelihood. I've fed my family here, raised, you know, raised kids and they're all off on their own. Uh, by now have a, a modest, um, you know, nest egg set up and I can, I can pay my bills. I haven't really had to buy food in 20 plus years and I eat really, really well. Um, the, the trick is you have to have enough of a quantity to be able to get that product to market uh, and all the processing that I mentioned earlier. So there has to be enough of it first. And then you also have to know when is enough and what to focus on more or less. And instead of getting excited by the sparkling things that are really cool and groovy, go with something that's steady, eddy, and reliable and super easy and cheap because way back before I started this ramble, you remember what I said that the, the, that the least expensive way to manage a natural system is the way nature does it. You can, you can take a, a piece of ground, set up a plant community and walk away from it and never do anything to it at all. Natural forces, I'll put forces in quotes, will take care of that and there will be things in there that will feed you, you know, heat your house. You could build out of it, you know, make mushrooms and all that kind of stuff. You can sell them. Uh, so what what we do is we try to figure out um, how much, how little work we can actually do in order to get the yields that we want. We don't try to – I'm not trying to beat anybody's yields on anything. I, I'm interested in spending less money on doing things – you know, uh, why should I gather up all kinds of biomass, which we have plenty of, 
put it in a special controlled environment, to burn it without oxygen, to crush it up, to apply it as biochar. Why would I go through all of that work? Why would I waste the energy in wood, turning it into heat, when I could take all that energy in wood and turn it into life in the form of mushrooms and soil life and so on and so on? Yeah, um, closing the loop on all of your systems so that the waste products of one system get used as the feed products of another. And, and if I need to buy a new piece of equipment or hire somebody to do something on the farm, I'm not likely to do it because why bother? Yeah, I mean, you have to put it through a certain level of arbitrage to see whether it's actually necessary for the inputs and the extra effort required, I'd imagine. Well, and, and that's actually one of the things that I've been a control site in a number of different experiments that like Department of Natural Resources done with tree establishment and direct seeding of trees and tree tubes, and all these different other things. And in a control is you basically do nothing. So I'm happy to do nothing. No weed control, no water, no fertilizer, you know, no nothing. And we actually get results. Do we get the same percentage survival is if you had done all of the bells and whistles that you're supposed to? No, we don't. However, because we planted enough, we can get a lower rate of survival and we still have stuff and we didn't do anything to it, um, you know, other than keep it alive for the first, you know, few months of its life. And a great example is with chestnuts. Uh, go do a search online for Michigan State University um, chestnut enterprise budget. And you're out close to $150,000 uh, before year seven hits and you have yet to harvest a single chestnut. Well, starting the very first year while planting chestnuts, I'm making, I'm making money on every acre, not from the chestnuts. It's from all the other parts of the system. So it's all the parts of the system uh, add up together in order to be enough to pay the bills. And I wasn't out $180,000 or $150,000 by year seven. I'd actually made a little money. Yeah. And so it's that resilience of having multiple systems working in synchronicity with one another. Neither one of them individually is paying the bills, but they also aren't, you know, sort of that linchpin that if it fails, everything goes under either. Yeah. You, you, you said a phrase that, that there was one time that a, uh, a journalist intentionally quoted me and clipped the quote and didn't take the whole thing and it you know they did it because they wanted to poo poo the kind of stuff that i do i said there's not any one thing that i do on this farm that's profitable by itself and they stopped the quote at there's not anything that i do on this farm that's profitable ah yeah that's sneaky there's no no single thing here will take care of it all Likewise, there's no single thing. If, if I'm a corn farmer and I got a failure of a corn crop, I'm out for the year. I've got to have you know federal subsidies and crop insurance and all that kind of stuff. Uh, we didn't raise any livestock this year. I got five freezers full of meat. What do I need animals for? You know, why have all that extra effort when I can go, you know, canoeing in the boundary waters or something? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, hey, so I know that in your case, as with nearly everybody starting out in agriculture, it took many years for your systems and operations to mature and develop. So could you tell me about how you planned ahead for this, this gradual development and how you manage those progressive stages until you were able to start collecting more of a yield on these perennial systems? 
Right. Well, the the um, you know once again uh, that that answer right there comes from imitating nature and natural plant communities because the the successional pathway how long it takes for a oak savanna to reach a certain phase of maturity is fairly well known and the stages are known what vegetation stages go through on their way to becoming this you know somewhat mature uh savanna type system and so we were able to have that as some knowledge that we worked with and then in the early years what we did is um some of the agroforestry techniques, we're still doing you know, the agroforestry techniques where we would plant a row of trees and then have an alley with a cash crop. And in the early years, just like in a disturbed system, let's go to a, a landslide or a volcano eruption or, or silt deposited from a flood, there's bare dirt. Nature goes through this phase. The first phase is typically a lot of the rank annual reeds, their job, weeds, their job is to hold down that soil, get some carbon in there live for a season, put out a prodigious amount of seeds, then die and contribute your body to the to the whole growing soil uh, food web. Then over time, the, the perennials come in, grasses, etc. And eventually, as the, the uh, shrubs and vines and trees grow and mature, you can get away completely from the annuals. So once upon a time, I was doing maybe 12 to 16 acres of certified organic produce um and for for people who who grow produce commercially um if if you wake up in the morning and you got work to do out in your produce patch and if the first thing that you grab is a hand tool that's what i call gardening this is not meant to be offensive or anything this is just a it's a it's a radical difference in a set of techniques to grow vegetables. Uh, most vegetables that human beings eat in the United States of America are grown on farms. Uh, they're, they're planted into soil prepared by a machine, planted with a machine, managed with a machine, harvested with a machine, of course, oftentimes using chemicals. Um, very little hand labor. And if you can just imagine the iconic uh, CSA with 120 different varieties of produce 50 volunteers three times a week and um, all the craziness on harvest days, these crazy diverse boxes. If you're going to be doing a wide diversity of produce, every time you switch between bundling radishes to bundling Swiss chard to bundling cilantro to you know so on and so on, you're losing uh, efficiencies. Whereas if, if you still have a certain amount of diversity in your produce, like three or four vegetable crops, but you grow them at scale. When I'm harvesting green peppers, I know I get up in the morning, I got this size box, this size field tote, I'm feeling for this size pepper, I snap it this way, trim the stem, put it in the box, and I don't look up until I'm done at the end of the day. That's very efficient. You don't have all those breaks in time. You don't have to switch boxes. Uh, and I sell uh, wholesale. I'm not, I'm not selling at farmer's market, never, um, no CSA. So the price per uh, uh, unit is probably one-third of what you would get at Farmer's Market or CSA. And a lot of people will, will come out here and they'll, they'll be doing asparagus, for example, and just flip out that I'm only getting three fifty dollars a pound for asparagus. That's insane. You go down to the, you know, you go down to Farmer's Market, seven bucks a pound for that stuff. Well, okay. 
take your asparagus down to farmer's market and sell it for seven bucks a pound. Maybe you sell 15, 20, 30 pounds of asparagus. Is that a business? Are you going to be able to, to pay your bills with that? Where, whereas in my case, I got two acres of asparagus. Uh, the reason why I've got two acres of asparagus is because one human being getting up at five in the morning and, and working for about eight hours a day can pick two acres of asparagus. You pick it, you bundle it, pack it, weigh it, put it in boxes, put it in the cooler, and before two o'clock in the afternoon, then you got the rest of the day to get something done. And um, back to yields and how this this relates, you have to have enough uh, to go wholesale because uh, we're just marginally large enough to really uh, get on a wholesale truck. Um, that's where the whole get bigger, get out thing, the economies of scale is a little bit bizarre. And so how we've uh, coped with that is by being part of a cooperative, um, I'm a, a grower member of the Organic Valley Cooperative. On the, in the produce program and say there's a dozen of us growing asparagus, uh, I only end up with about a, a ton of asparagus in the course of one year. Um, I challenge you to sell a ton of asparagus at farmer's market, um, but a ton of asparagus in the course of a year on two acres, it's a quick little six-week season. I bring my asparagus, put it on the same pallet with all the other growers, and then it goes on the trucks you know, like half a truckload or a full truckload of a of a produce at a time. Sure. And how many really helpful. How many acres do you have again? Of asparagus? No, no, no. Two. Two of asparagus, but as the whole farm. It's 110. 110. 110. Okay. Yeah. To give us an idea and, and, of scale. And so what relates what relates to the 110? It also relates to the asparagus. Um, and in earlier comments I made, typically I get lower yields across the board of every single thing that I grow. I get lower yields of chestnut, lower yields of you know, hazelnuts, lower yields of asparagus, lower yields of produce, lower yields on, on you know, amount of beef or pork gained per acre. And that's okay. I may be getting a lower yield, but I get multiple yields per acre. And my, my costs are virtually you know, non-existent. They really, they really almost disappear. Yeah, that's a big thing that so many of the other regenerative agriculturalists that I've interviewed, like Joel Salatin and Richard Perkins, really harp on is the profit is not always in increasing the yield or upping the scale at which you're producing things. But if you can maximize efficiency and get your overhead down to a minimum, that's really where it becomes a sustainable business practice. Well, don't get me going because at least one of the people in the sustainable regenerative movement, you know, basically lowers his overhead by not paying anybody anything. As a matter of fact, charges people. They have to pay him in order to work for him. That seems to me a lot like, what do they call that? Slavery? <laughs> anyway, just, I, you know, so that's, I'm not going to do that. That's, I don't think that's right. Yeah, it's also not typical of most people who are running these things. There are a couple of people who've gotten famous off the image and the way that they teach that have access to that type of pedagogy or attraction to the uh, workforce, but it's not representative of the larger movement. Right. Well, good. I hope not. <laughs> I see it. I see it all too often. I really do. As you know, especially in the CSA model, it really bums me out because. There's a lot of produce being produced out there in the world, high-quality stuff, really good stuff by really excellent expert craftsmen farmers. But it's not a profitable business because they have to depend on free labor to harvest it. 
that you know there's there's uh there's something wrong with our economy i'm not going to necessarily blame them there's something wrong with our economy that we have to have slaves in order for our business to be viable yeah that could be said of a lot of different business models though too right internships think of that about that you're interned Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> that is one good way to look at it. Well, hey, so you're known for giving very honest and practical advice to help people come to terms with the reality of regenerative farming, which is exactly what you're talking about right now. It's a good transition. So, I mean, it's one of the reasons why I've been such a big fan of your seminars, your online videos, and of course the book, Re uh, Restorative Agriculture. What are some of the other pivotal concepts, um, other than the ones you just mentioned already, that permaculturalists really need to grasp if they want to make a successful enterprise out of farming? Right. Just, just the, as a non-aside, the title of the book is Restoration Agriculture. I intentionally chose that because by, by observing nature and imitating the natural plant communities, we are doing genuine ecological restoration. Absolutely. And we're doing it simultaneously with food production, which is agriculture, and we're using the cash flow from the agriculture to accomplish ecological restoration. Uh, so it's it's talking to the ecological restoration folks and it's talking to the uh, agricultural folks. And and one of the things that that absolutely needs to be addressed. Somebody just sent me an article lately about you know somebody's bashing permaculture because it's just a cult of this and that and the other thing. Well, I. He wanted me to rebut the article. Everything that was said in that article was true, that the biggest thing I think that, that permaculturists have to, to understand is that if you want this to actually take off and be something more than a really cool, fun social movement for people who have extra time uh, and the capital to be able to do this and aren't like hungry and looking for the next, you know, two-liter bottle of soda pop and a, and a, and a, bag, a bag of Cheetos, um, it has to be an economically viable enterprise. Part of what that will require is a certain scale. Well, then permies go right to the thing, oh, but the changes are supposed to be small. Everything's supposed to be small. It's like, well, use small and incremental changes uh, here's one small incremental change that I would like to implement across the USA. Let's take all of the annual cropland and do one small change and begin the transition back toward the natural plant community types that it was before European settlers got here. That's a small change, and yet it covers hundreds of millions of, of acres, square miles of, of land. And it would be... Uh, ecologically huge. So I think that that, um, you know, the small incremental changes um, principle has been misinterpreted to the detriment of, of permaculture. Yeah, I completely agree with that. It's one of the reasons why I really gravitated towards your teachings as well is uh, like you said, small and incremental changes, but it needs to be done on a scale where it actually has an impact. And no one's going to continue to follow these models if it's not economically viable moving forward. And, and even if it's not, and, and this is actually what's fascinating, you know, I mentioned my growing up, well, we were basically suburban homesteaders. The homesteader trip, what a beautiful lifestyle that is. However, what an economic piece of crap it is because you got to work all day at your job. 
just in order to have enough money to pay your bills in order to get by. Well, then as soon as you get home, you got to go out and, you know, you know, say milk the goats or, you know, milk the chickens or whoever you're milking and then take care of this produce and that produce and butcher this and process that. And yet it's not enough of any of that to make any money at except on Saturday, you make 30 bucks at farmer's market or whatever. And most uh, most of the suburban urban homesteader permie types aren't feeding themselves. So if you can't feed yourself, how are you supposed to have surplus to share with others? If it's if it's going to be fair, share. Well, then how about having enough to share, but let's take care of yourself first. And can you feed yourself? And and one of the things I think that the urban suburban permaculturists should at least look at more closely. I'm not trying to like, you know, do any kind of serious smackdown here. Show me one example, one example of somebody growing all of their food in their yard permaculturally. One example. Grow your food. You know how much food uh uh two hundred pounds just take Paul Wheaton. Paul Wheaton's not a small animal. He's what six <laughs> no he's not. Neither in size or in personality. He's not exactly skinny either. That boy takes a lot of calories, a lot of carbohydrates, proteins, and oils to keep that body going. And to to feed that thing, it's going to take more than a berry bush in your backyard. And a mud oven has never fed anybody. A mud oven might cook some pizza, but it's not feeding anybody. So let's get these things to the scale where we're actually solving real problems for real uh, and feeding people and having a surplus to exchange with others however we feel like it. If you want to give it away, give it away. If you want to charge way too much and rip people off, do that. We want to have surplus produced in ecological systems. There you go. Now, that leads me to one of the sticking points that a lot of people who are looking to scale up their enterprises often end up in. And I know you've done something that pretty much every permaculture practitioner I know aspires to, and that's owning your own land or farm. So in your case, you're able to do it without any inheritance, savings, grants, or gifts. Can you help to explain the systems that you use and that anyone in the U.S. at least can use to acquire their own land? Yeah, one is it's called borrowing money. It's called getting a mortgage. And so all of a sudden, you bump right into the scale thing right off the bat. It's like, oh my gosh, uh, let's just use here as an example, uh, fairly reasonably priced land, um, $3,000 an acre. 100-acre farm, that's $300,000. There's $3,000 a month payments, okay? How do I earn $3,000 a month? I need to, you know, you divide that up however you want to divide that up. Uh, that's a math problem. Well, one of the things that you can do is start today. Um, I started with haircuts because I had done a brief stint um, sailing on the oceans in gray boats for the uh, federal government. And I had to get a haircut every two weeks, and it cost me money out of my paycheck to get my haircut or else I'd fail inspection. So what I did as soon as I got out is I said, I, you know, I'm not going to live in an industrial wasteland uh, city anymore. I'm going to get a piece of land somewhere out in the country. So I have to start saving my money um, for a down payment. And so every time I needed a haircut, I took the equivalent amount of money and I put it in a, into a, uh, an investment vehicle that you can do really, really small, and you can't touch it for five years. And it's a pathetic return on investment. 
Um, but that wasn't the point. The point was to discipline myself to put money away that I can't touch. And those were U.S. savings bonds, double E savings bonds. You can put them wherever you want. You can put it in a money market, CDs, savings account. But you've got to have the discipline to keep your fingers out of the cookie jar or that money will never pile up. Another easy way to do it is to go ahead and not have a double over under Frappuccino from Buckstarts, shade grown and all that kind of stuff. Don't have that. Go get a, 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 a dollar cup of rot gut at the, you know, Mr. Donut or Horton Tim's or whoever you go to um, and take that extra two bucks that you would have spent on a fancy drink, put it away, save it. Then after a period of years go by, forget how many years it was, it probably was, it was probably four or five years of putting my haircut money away and coffee money away um, that had a reasonable amount of money um, saved up. You don't need all the money for, for, uh, to buy a piece of land. You just need enough money for the down payment. One of the things that I had also done was exercise my um, credit worthiness by flexing my credit cards. And I got as many credit cards as I possibly could. Any offer I got in the mail, I said yes. And then what I would do is on my day-to-day -day spending, if I needed to buy a hat, I would put it on my credit cards, then immediately pay off the credit card bill with, with money from my checking account. And what that did is that um, you would get that credit bing that you, you borrowed money from your credit card, but then you paid it off before it, it um, generated interest. And so by exercising your, your skill at borrowing and paying it off, now don't be buying stupid stuff like flat screen TVs and racking up you know, credit at the bar on, on Friday nights and all that kind of stuff. Uh, use it for your day-to-day -day expenses and pay it off before it generates interest. <clears throat> then what will happen is you now have saved some money and you now uh, have a proven track record of borrowing. Uh, then it's, it's quite likely that you can uh, maybe if you can't get it from a, a bank or credit union, you can uh, convince a person who's selling land to sell you the land on what's called a land contract. Other people call it the, uh, the seller um, takes back some paper, which means it's, it's an owner finance deal. <clears throat> and so that's how I got started was 100% was borrowed money uh, buying a, a clear cut up in Maine. Why would I buy a clear cut? Well, because the value add for the improvement is going to be even more so. If I had bought a piece of paradise, one, I wouldn't be able to afford it. And two, how much value can you add to it? It's already doing really, really well. But if you got a place that looks like you know somebody dropped bombs on it, uh, you can turn that around real quick with a little bit of work. And so what you do is you go out there with your you know chainsaw, or handsaw, or whatever it is. You make a recreational cabin and have everything permitted and legal uh, according to the local codes. Don't try to do anything crazy and far out. Because you're a cool permie and all that stuff, what we're doing here is we're trying to earn a livelihood and, and make a living and not get the law after us. So after you build your nice little recreational uh, cabin, plant all these trees, you know, chestnuts and hazelnuts, hickory nuts and butternuts and walnuts and all that stuff, uh, then you hire an appraiser to come and look at the land and say, hey, it's, you put a recreational cabin on that. That land is now worth this much more. 
Well, when you get an appraisal from an appraiser, you take it to a bank. The bank will loan you up to 80% of that appraised value. Um, they will. They know that if you don't make a payment, they just take the land and it's worth that much and they'll just sell it to somebody else. So you use that money that you borrow up to the 80% of the, um, of the uh, property value to buy the next one. And so uh, basically I've been a non-selling non flipper for the past 30 years. I've had to flip two properties um, you know, for, for cash flow purposes. Uh, but you buy a piece of property. You improve on it ecologically using permaculture design principles, agroforestry techniques, build a little recreational shelter. You know, it qualifies as a recreational cabin. To me, it's a castle. Um, and you're, you're creating real value. We're, we are real estate investors. And if you just look around you, the degraded land uh, available on this planet is, is astronomically huge. We can buy garbage, cheap, junk land that nobody wants, ecologically rehabilitate it, and we get the added value because we did the work. That's right. And like you said, that inherent value that you add to a space too is finally being valued correctly. And I mean, aside from all the ecological advice in that, that's just good sound financial advice for anyone trying to accrue uh, equity. Right. And then what was interesting is you noticed that uh, I said that, you know, you increase the value of this property to borrow more money and then buy the next one. Well, that means the next one's mortgaged and then you increase the value of that. You pay off the first, you, you buy the third, you pay off the second, you buy the fourth and so on and so on. You always have this pile of debt. And have you ever heard of um, politicians referring to the phrase to kick the can down the road? Yep. Well, that's what we're doing. That's called the economy. The planetary economy works this way. It just does. Okay, so it's evil. Big deal. Are you using it to create earth care, people care, and some sort of equitable system for, for humanity and all the other life that we share on this, on this incredible planet? Are you using the, the twisted, warped economic system that we have in order to feed yourself, your friends, your family? Uh, and to pass down a place that will benefit the future in perpetuity. Now, let's think about I've got one property that has a mortgage on it. And if I miss too many payments, uh, they're going to take it away. Well, then what happens? I go back to the previous one and what was planted there. It's a, it's a I hate the phrase food forest, but there's, there's a food ecosystem has been planted there and there's a place for me to live and it's paid for free and clear and it has an account that pays the taxes and it's all done with borrowing and improving the value of the property and yeah, work it's and a good way of flipping this on its head because like like you said a lot of people are somewhat allergic to the concept of borrowing especially of getting into debt it seems contrary to many of the principles that they're trying to promote but from this angle, if it's done for the right reasons and if you really have a plan starting out, it's one of the most legitimate ways to really start building towards something larger and making a real impact rather than just fooling around with small gardens. And, and for, for me, what makes a big difference there is that what you're not doing is buying a cardboard condo in Florida in order to paint it white and then flip it for you know $10,000 more. To me, there's no real value been added to the human race or to the planet. It's just more toxic crap and it's going to blow away in the first hurricane. Whereas if I go to a piece of degraded real estate, a sand pit, a quarry, a clear cut, you know, a mudslide, landslide, 
and I rehabilitate that ecologically. It's a better home for wildlife. It's producing air, clean air, clean water. And if I stack it heavily with the food and the medicine plants and I build a shelter for me to live on, a simple little shelter that's made with renewable materials, far too little attention in the whole permaculture world is spent on talking about wood, logs, cordwood, vertical logs, horizontal logs. Um, it's, I'm it's so glad you said that. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. And stone. Hello. What about stone? You know, let's build out a stone. And, See, and that's so my what, whole kick. My whole kick is putting uh, permaculture through the lens of the built environment and just how wasteful it is and how that can be turned on its head to actually make regenerative living environments. So I'm really glad you brought that up. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, we'll definitely have to uh, brainstorm some ideas for promoting those concepts sometime soon. But yeah, go on. Oh, you just derailed me. It's not a problem. <laughs> you, you'll start me up again. Yeah, yeah so right. anyways, if, if I miss a payment and they take... You know, and, it, and it's stressful. Back to the hard work. It's going to take some work. You know, you can't just lay around till the crack of noon and get up and, and dance around the garden with a purple hanky and say, hey, everything's wonderful. We're permaculturists. All right. Feed yourself. Period. And if and, and take this, away this all is, the support networks, all of the infrastructure that's otherwise your safety net. And can you still take care of yourself? A lot of people don't meet that criteria. This is a challenge to you right now is starting tomorrow, eat nothing unless it was grown in a permaculture system somewhere, okay? And keep doing that day after day after day until you cry uncle and come visit me. Um, and one of the things about the systems that I've just explained, if we're going to imitate a natural ecosystem, what happens if the dinosaur juice doesn't flow anymore, the electric robot cars don't work anymore or you know whatever happens and the zombies start coming nature is going to still work and if we've set up a natural system we can interact with that with no more technology more advanced than a stick and a stone absolutely yeah that's the, that's one of the things i harp on to people who are total survivalists and emergency responders and they're hoarding um you know cheap canned goods and stuff and like that's not a real solution you still at some point need to produce the things that you're going to want to consume and it, yeah everything you're talking about is the only viable way to put that to scale the last the last survivalist expo i went to i couldn't believe it there were people all over this one booth it's a shipping container and it's full of a 20 years supply of 12 ounce aluminum cans of sterilized water <laughs> and you just go up to it, open up the hatch, and take out your can, and it'll keep feeding you cans for 20 years. It's like, what the heck? And people are spending big bucks on this. It's like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> there are so many better ways. <laughs> and yet, and yet they, won't, they won't think about planting a diverse food-producing ecosystem, and they won't think about managing it with animals such as like a couple cows. And no, couple clearly pigs. that's insane. Yeah, that's totally. <laughs> but canning your water yeah, well, for the next two decades, that's a viable option. Gotta, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, okay, so let's let's move on just for a second here. With so many diverse enterprises going on all at once on your farm, 
how do you keep everything organized and how do you ensure that any given effort is pulling its own weight in the system? Because like you mentioned before, when it comes to bringing in more machinery or hiring more people to do things, you just don't bother. It's not worth the effort for you. So how do you sort of make those decisions and uh, cut elements of the system that aren't pulling their own weight? Because if it's not pulling it all, its own weight, you know you know it because it's, it's dragging you down. You're working your ass off. It's no fun and it's not paying you any money you know, to, to get by. Um, one of the things that is interesting with all the different things that I've done through the years, and it's different almost every single year, there have been people who've gotten upset. It's like, but you told me you did this. It's like, well, yeah, I did do that for a while until something else was doing better at that time. So one of the things is how many – how many balls can you keep in the air while juggling, right? What I've kind of noticed is I can basically handle about five above-ground plant crop kind of things and still do a decent job at it. And I can handle two, maybe three types of livestock at any point in time without going too crazy. And uh, another thing that we have to um, understand is it's no crime to fail at something. So I'm going to do this and you get started and you go at it and you realize after, you know, six months, a year, two years, whatever, it's like, wow, this ain't working. Drop it like a stone. Forget it. It's like, well, yeah, but all the stuff I got invested in it. Well, yep, you had invested into it and all that time you put into it, move on to something that works, let it go. Cut the losses. Unless you're, unless you're trying stuff, uh, nothing's going to happen. And if you try stuff and it doesn't work, well, stop doing it. <laughs> I don't know if that makes any sense at all. It Here's- does, yeah. I mean, I often get very sentimental when I've put a lot of effort into something and I don't want to see it fail or I at least want to see it through to the bitter end. But I have also learned that there does come a point where you do need to cut your losses and focus on the things that are working. So I'm, I'm actually working with a client right now and I hope he's not listening to this because I'm not talking about him, okay? There's this theoretical person who is is running these fancy dancy cattle that they spent big bucks for because it's the best genetics. They gain the best on grass and yada yada yada. And you got to keep them through the winter, so they're in a place that has winter, so they have to cut hay in the summer. Well, if you're cutting hay in the summertime and it rains on the hay, it's now poor quality hay. So he's got expensive genetics, and then through the winter time, he's feeding them cheap garbage hay because his hay got rained on look at all the work that got embedded into that system and all of the all of the um losses that he wired into that system first of all he spent you know 15 grand on one animal for for these hypergenetics which are supposedly the best genetics on grass then he's got to have all of the haying equipment that he possibly needs and just look at how expensive tractor uh haybine you know, rakes, balers, now a place to store all the hay. So now you've got to have some kind of dry sheds and barns and yada, yada, yada. And then, of course, you're feeding your animals garbage hay because it got rained on. Well, if you all of a sudden said, all right, I'm not going to do that. What I'm going to do is I'm going to go buy cheap stalker cattle, you know, one-year-old calf, a 500-pound animal, in the spring when the grass is green. Around here, they're around a buck, buck fifty a pound. Usually, it varies. So let's say it's a dollar a pound because I could do that math. Costs you five hundred bucks for that animal. You just run it around on portable electric fence. So you've got some. But you, you've got. I gotta hang on a second. 
that's an important call. Sounded like it. Sounded like it something is. from uh, one of those Ten Commandments movies. <laughs> it's the Huntsman or whatever it is. Um, uh, so all of a sudden, if you just buy that stalker cattle in the spring, you've got your, your portable electric fence into it. Well, then you just eat grass, and a cow will eat a gain two to three pounds a day. Any old shit, that could be a dairy animal, okay? It's going to gain two to three pounds a day. Then you sell it in the fall after it's gained you know, 300 pounds in the course of a summertime. If you paid 500 bucks for it, you sell it same buck a pound in the fall. You sell it for $800. You've just made um, uh, 60% return on your investment. But since it was only six months, that means it was actually 120% return on your investment. What's wrong with that? You had – all of a sudden, oh, there's no hay. There's don't have to cut hay. If you need hay, you buy hay. That's a cost. But you're buying the top quality, the best feed that somebody else cut somewhere else, and they had all the investments involved in it. And then over the wintertime, you're not trying to keep waterers from breaking. You're not trying to you know, get the hay out there through the snow. You don't have to have any kind of shelter for the animals because they're just out there in the summertime. Um, they're not the highfalutin, fancy-dancy genetics. Well, all right, that was just a simple buy it at the sale barn, sell it at the sale barn. Well, let's just buy, you know, 10 animals. So instead of 500 bucks, it's now $5,000. And then let's let's sell them to friends at $3 a pound. Could you imagine having beef that was grazed on a certified organic farm and you can get this animal for only 3 bucks a pound? So now if I sell this 800-pound animal in the fall at 3 bucks a pound, it's $2,400. I only got 500 bucks into each animal in the course of a summer. That's in the thousands of percent return on investment. Why do I need why do I need all of that infrastructure investment? Yeah. And it's keys like this that really get people rolling so that they can do either other enterprises in the future, but at least have enough to securely pay their bills and make sure that they have a bit of a safety net while they try other enterprises that maybe take a little bit longer to mature or to turn over. Right. Let's take let's take the cows for example too. You know, let's take let's get five animals, and if I'm making a you know a 120 percent return on my investment, uh, what if I put one of them in the freezer? That's 20 percent of my profits. Oh no! Now I'm only making 100 percent return on my investment. Crap! And I get free beef, which if you go to the you know the local food co-op, you know you're paying sometimes like 18 to 24 bucks a pound for ribeyes and t-bones um six bucks seven bucks a pound for just for ground beef and so the the use value that you're getting out of that and if you don't eat animals well fine don't eat animals eat chestnuts and hazelnuts how many pounds of chestnuts and hazelnuts is paul wheaton going to eat in the course of a year probably 600 to you know a thousand pounds in the course of a year that's a lot of trees and that's a lot of work to pick up those nuts and a lot of work to process those nuts and clean those nuts. But it's enough. It'll, it'll, it'll feed you. Yeah, for sure. Now, let's flip that around and talk about some of the various enterprises over the years that you have found worth your while. Because you have a large variety of connected enterprise, uh, enterprises within your farm and, you know, counting your expertise as well. You give seminars, you sell nursery stock, animals, educational courses. How did you eventually decide which of these to put your time and efforts into? And what are some of the examples of things that didn't quite make the cut? Um, well, geez, you know, we started with uh, the farm. The farm, 
is not the real estate. The real estate is a real estate investment that's held differently. The farm is an LLC. It grows agricultural products for sale. And so it started with um, uh, certified organic produce, uh, cattle, and pigs. And the, the pigs, they don't make as much money, um, I think, mostly because the, uh, uh, the feeder pigs cost more, relatively speaking, than like uh, stalker cattle do. Um, and so that's how I started with, with the produce side of things. Well, now I wanted to plant all these trees. And um, I realized in a hurry that if, if I ordered a thousand trees, I got a per tree cost that was a lot less than if I had bought, you know, the hundred trees that I really needed. So I go buy the thousand trees and sell the other 900 um, at a modest profit just to cover my expenses. So then the tree and shrub nursery started working well in real short order because um, I've started from the, from the get-go genetically selecting for fast to reproduce woody plant genetics. I had my own seed and I'll think about the tree and shrub <coughs> nursery industry. Do I have to have all these pots and irrigation systems? It's like, no, you don't. You just need a, a little patch of ground. You scratch it up, you protect it from rodents and you put in a gazillion seeds and not all of them will sprout. Not all of them will be high quality nursery stock. So the high quality nursery stock, you can, you know, grade out and you sell that. And then you have all of this other nursery stock that's been subsidized by sales of stuff that was grown from your own seed. And so that's worked really well throughout the years. Um, a, a lot of people, you know, look around now and they say, oh, yeah, you're doing all the speaking and teaching and seminars and books. And well, that's a recent phenomenon. I've been at this for 30 years. OK, and I've only been um, really out there since 2013. And, uh, because I'm semi-retired now, I've, I've done this for a career. And so that's something that, um, has been recent. And what it supplanted is, uh, in our processing building, um, started setting up the hazelnut processing equipment because the hazelnuts need to be rubbed out of the husk. They need to be cracked. They need to be sorted and separated, pressed for oil, so as I was piecing together the processing line for hazelnuts, I was also piecing together all of the equipment for um, producing apple cider because we got a couple thousand apple trees out there. Uh, and we licensed as a winery. I think it's uh, 10 years now, 10 years ago that we had licensed and started making hard cider just prior to the big cider boom. Um, and... Uh, it was going okay. It was a heck of a lot of work, a lot of investment in equipment that doesn't have secondary uses. Basically, an alcohol fermenter or a carbonation tank can only be an alcohol fermenter or a carbonation tank. Um, and so it was, it was a struggle getting it going. Well, then we had a new political regime take over, and then they campaigned on the promise of eliminating stupid regulations so business could flourish, leveling the playing field. And so what they did is they leveled the playing field uh, and, and mandated that small-scale uh, breweries and wineries had to go through a distributor. And so what that did is that all of a sudden um, uh, made the economics suck really bad for doing 
the uh, the cider at our scale. We could have upscaled and, and you know started a factory and kept going. Sales were all right. It would have been okay. I'm not the best business manager in the world, but it was it was getting by and and our label was getting out there and it was right at you know right at the cider boom. So if we had decided to go ahead and, and build a factory instead of just having running it out of the shop, um, that would have been a different a different course we were on. So that was a little bit of overwork, underpaid, regulations changed, and it's like forget it, just walk away, just walk away. If we were in in New York, or California, or Michigan, you know, we'd be having uh, one heck of a, a cider house going on here because those laws are really favorable to small scale. Uh, fermentaries and and you think about what they shut down during the, the depression is they wanted to shut down the the local rural population they want to be impoverished so they come to town you work in the factories you make a lot of money off the backs of these people hard work and live autonomous independent economically independent lives and they won't be dependent on all of your different uh, systems so that's one that that uh, I dropped um, Right now, that's the only one because I'm sitting. I'm sitting in my cidery, looking at you know bottles and labels and all the knickknacks on the wall. A nice little uh, kegerator. All the surplus merchandise, yeah. Yeah, surplus merchandise. Like you know, unfortunately, there's hundreds of gallons of cider sitting around, ice cold and ready to go. <laughs> <laughs> what a shame to have a surplus of that. Terrible. Terrible. <laughs> Well, hey, Mark, uh, you've been really generous with your time so far. But before I let you go, how can listeners get involved with Restoration Agriculture and find out more about your work? Well, like I mentioned, um, you can read the read the book Restoration Agriculture. It's published by Acres USA. It's available, you know, in Kindle format or regular um, paperback. From yeah, Acres I highly USA. recommend that as well. One of my favorites. Then um, my, the Edible Woody um Tree Crops Nursery, what we are is we're a networked nursery is we work with other growers who are doing the breeding work like we are doing it. Um, and um, so we, we, we specialize in crops that have they're, – they're pre, hyper-precocious, meaning they early to produce, early in their life. They're pest and disease-free with um, sheer total utter neglect with you know, like no fertilizers, herbicides, fungicides, etc. They're – they're designed, you know, we're genetically selecting on purpose for low input systems. Um, so that's uh, forestag.com. And then uh, for, you know, workshops and or uh, consultation, do a lot of um, water management um, systems, uh, you know, aquaculture systems, go to restorationag.com. Then, uh, for regular on ongoing training, matter of fact, tonight this is Wednesday night. There will be a session. I'll be uh, doing a session at uh, six thirty p.m. Central. Uh, we have what we call the Eat Community. It's eatcommunity.com, and I think we have twelve, thirteen regular teachers uh, every single week, and then we bring on guest teachers periodically. Uh, I do a continuous thread on terrestrial ecology and how it applies to restoration agriculture you know, growing uh, agricultural products in um, restored uh, ecological systems and all the basic ecology that goes with that. So there's restorationag.com, forestag.com, eatcommunity.com, and Acres USA for the book Restoration Agriculture. And I do have a water management systems book due 
to be published uh, spring or summer of 2018. Don't exactly know when that will be out. That'll also be by uh, Acres USA. So keep an eye out on Acres. Fantastic. I'm definitely going to look forward to that. We'll have to do a follow-up interview when that book comes out as well. That'll be good. And yeah, I really recommend for people to get in touch with the EAT community. I've interviewed some of their other instructors, including uh, William Horvath as well, who I'm sure would say hi to you (laughs) if he was here with me today. He talks about you all the time. Fantastic. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time today, Mark. It's been a pleasure talking to you and uh, hopefully we'll stay in touch. And I'm looking forward to your book coming out later in the year. All right. Thanks for your time, Oliver. Thank you. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. As always, you can find all the show notes for this and all other episodes at AbundantEdge.com by clicking on the podcast tab in the navigation bar. On the website, you can also find a whole range of educational articles as well as the services we offer from design and consulting to education. While you're there, don't forget to take a look at the courses and workshops that we offer, which are all designed to empower you to take back control of your life by giving you the skills to produce your own food, manage landscapes regeneratively, build your own homes and structures with natural materials, and most importantly, to dream ever bigger about the highest potential that you could achieve for yourself, your community, and the planet that we all share. Thank you sincerely to all of you who have and continue to add comments and send feedback to me. Your contributions help this to be the conversation and dialogue that it's meant to be. For anyone else interested, you can email me and the whole team directly at info at AbundantEdge.com or you can post your questions directly to the Abundant Edge podcast Facebook page to which there's a link in the show notes of this episode. All of your feedback makes these episodes and interviews so much more engaging and help me to give you the information and content that you want. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you again in next week's session.